The Apostle Paul and the letters he wrote hold a core place in Christian doctrine. But then Emanuel Swedenborg, writing a new Christian theology, doesn't even mention Paul until his 11th theological work. Are the two sets of doctrines mutually incompatible? That would be an easy assumption to make, but the truth is much more interesting. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss the prevalence of spiritual experiences. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, untangles the mystery of Paul's place in New Church theology. Then we travel to 1748, when Swedenborg chose London over Amsterdam to be the writing and publishing hub of his new spiritual work, This Week in History. Hello, Curtis Childs. Hey, Chelsea. It is great to have you here to talk again on Inside Off the Left Eye. Oh, I'm glad you said that. I was I was wondering if um, you were getting a little tired of me hanging out. Oh. Oh, no. How could I get bored of okay, having good. you and getting Appreciate to have it. these conversations? I was so, fishing for a compliment and I reeled it in. That's <laughs> good. Good work. <laughs> Best use of our time. <laughs> um, hey, everybody. So, <laughs> this is Curtis Childs, everybody. And no, today we're, uh, this week, actually, we've been exploring near-death experiences. And Monday's show was the framework behind all near-death experiences. If you haven't had a chance yet, you can watch that on our YouTube channel. And, uh, and it was about this, uh, you know, multiple near-death experiences that were cataloged by PMH Atwater and, and then sort of seeing how they all, how Swedenborg's 30 years of having open communication with the spiritual world sets up this framework for being able to understand the different things that happen in their experiences. So really interesting. And as usual, on Thursday of every week, we post our reflection question. And so you and I now will get to have some fun and, and, and respond ourselves to this question. Let's reflect. If you want to see others, if our responses aren't enough, you can go read other people's uh, responses. Please type your compliments in the chat. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> to do this question on our social media channels at Off the Left Eye or on the community tab on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. So here's the question. Um, have you, Curtis, or someone you know had a spiritual experience yeah man and that is to say no okay <laughs> well or, or somebody i know yes yeah somebody you know, People what, I know. What's absolutely one you... yeah, okay so maybe um, elaborate on that turns out my next door neighbor growing up not growing up but like from age seven to end of high school i lived next uh-huh. door to someone who had a near-death experience a near-death uh, experience. Yes, cool. like yeah. a, a near, I mean, good old near-death experience. I didn't know that until actually her nephew is one of my very best friends, and he told me that, that she had had one. So mm. there's that. Um, I have an aunt who had had a lot of not near-death experiences, but waking visions where, where she was able to have what she felt like was uh, not dreams, but these communications with mm. people that we knew that had crossed over. Yeah. Um, so those are two that come to mind immediately, but nice. yeah, they're out there, man. And yeah, I, and I guess, oh, I was just going to say that the, like this question, it's fun because even, you know, just to see that 
there are a lot of people out there like spiritual experiences are just a part of the human experience you know and it's one that we don't necessarily talk about because it can be so sort of taboo because it's like oh well what's really going on and is it just a hallucination is it just whatever but like it's just great to put it out there and be like yeah this is some this is a phenomenon so let's talk about it it's it's irrevocably part of the human experience and just the fact that i can reel off those two Mm -hmm. and those are pretty like my aunt, you only have so many of those. And yeah. <laughs> um, my next door neighbor, neighbor, you only have yep. two of those. I know. Uh, just the fact that they, they, right off the bat, they have them. And I know for a fact that a lot of, uh, uh, quite a number of people in my acquaintances have had um, ne- actual like near-death experiences. Yeah. So, but to add on top of that, people will, you know, if you say, have you ever had something happen? people who would sort of say they haven't had one will often say, well, but there was this one time when, and there's something that sticks in their mind. There's just this whole spectrum of mm, stuff mm-hmm. from the very overt to the like, oh, I just can't shake that that was something different than my regular experience. I wonder like just how high that percentage is of people who have had some kind of conscious interaction with the spiritual world. It's out there. It's happening. Yes. And that reminds me. So like in my in my experience, similarly, and I've wondered whether it's because I, I grew up in a Swedenborgian community, so it was kind of, it was more accepted that this kind of thing happened, so maybe I heard more about other people having those kinds of experiences often, Right. Um, where I feel like there's just any number of them, you know, I could tally off, but uh, I'm just remembering right now that there was a cool experience I had once where I went to a friend's house for a uh, a, a Jewish holiday and I got into conversation with somebody there and they were asking about, you know, who I was, what did I do? You know, where was I from? And the subject of our faiths came up and I was describing, um, or, you know, I wonder actually, I think it probably was just that I said I worked for off the left eye. So it's like, well, what's that? And so then I was describing conversation, Borg, you know, yeah. the, the shorthand. Um, and, and they just were like, they recognized just from what I said, like, you're somebody I could talk to about the spiritual experiences that I've had. And they started opening up to me about like, just that they had had, uh, you know, these kinds of experiences or visions or sort of communications that they didn't know how to catalog in their experience, you know, like how do you make sense of this? And, and it was just so sweet that they felt free to just, they recognize like, well, I'm somebody who's like, well, I have a pocket for that. You know, there is a file for, oh yeah, spiritual experiences happen this is the framework around them, it's you know, the, that they could just talk to me about it. She she can handle this. Yeah. So that's really cool. And people can read about other people's experiences on our um, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and also on the community tab on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. And now we're going to turn our direction this next week on the channel to the book of Revelation. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. It feels different. What I think that the, what Swedenborg can provide is this stuff that seems to be in totally different categories. You get to see how it's all actually part of the same. It's got the same soul, and then like all of life becomes this immersion in that one thing. So it's, it's let's do it. Let's unite these different pieces of life. Yes, yes. The framework continues, right. and we're going to find that framework in Monday's show, which is called Revelation: The Bottomless Pit. And we're going to be exploring, that's from chapter nine of the book of Revelation. And it's when the fifth and sixth trumpets sound. And it's in the middle of these extensive visions that John is having on the Isle of Patmos. And these locusts come out of a bottomless pit. And these four angels are released from the river Euphrates. And they 
wreak havoc. And so it's like, what are angels doing, doing all that? Uh, we answer these questions. We explore the the framework behind these bizarre um, experiences, and and we we dig deep into into what it means and how it can apply to our spiritual lives. So I hope you'll watch and. Curtis, will you now hang around and join Jonathan and me to talk about where Swedenborg was this week in history at the end of the show? I'm getting amped up. All right. See you then. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. And uh, so what, what news this week? Well, I'm still thinking about the shorter works of 1763. Yes. It was great fun to do a show with Curtis about it just yesterday. and um, uh, That people can find on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel, I'm pretty sure. That's right. That's right. It, was, it actually had video. It wasn't just yes. audio. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking about Swedenborg's complex relationship to Paul. Mm. You know, there's this disciple, sometimes he's called an apostle, Paul, who was very active in establishing Christianity, and he wrote a number of the epistles in the New Testament and is a huge figure in Christianity. And so in the 1763s, Swedenborg mentions the name of Paul for the first time. Mm. Now, it should not be a news item. It shouldn't be a headline. (laughs) for a Christian author to mention the name of Paul. Uh, He was huge in the 18th century, as he is now. But Swedenborg somehow, up until the point where he talks about him in supplements, where it comes is kind of interesting. If you stacked all the first editions of the shorter works of 1763 in order, it would come onto the second to last page of the first edition. Uh. It's at the back of the book. And, in fact, if you piled up all the pages he had published until then, there were 5,344 pages with no mention of Paul. Wow. And that's in his multi-volume, you know, exegesis of the Bible, Secrets of Heaven. That's right. So it it had the opportunity, you'd think. (laughs) Yes, a few opportunities there in those 5,344 pages that he had not taken advantage of. And then all of a sudden, on page 5,345, he just mentions Paul. And what he says about him is kind of interesting, that uh, he says that the Moravians uh, actually don't much care for the Old Testament. They don't much care for the Gospels in the New Testament. They really only like what Paul has to say about faith alone. That's the mention that he makes toward the end of this book. <laughs> oh, man. So that becomes interesting to me. Uh, Swedenborg has an interesting relationship with Paul in his spiritual experiences, which was not published. He has a couple of passages that make quite critical comments about Paul's writings about his state of enlightenment and things like that. You, you would gather from that that Swedenborg was quite negative. Right. Then in Secrets of Heaven, he has statements toward the very end in volume eight of the original Latin, eight volumes. Mm. He says, uh, he talks about which books in the Bible, he wades in, oh, yeah. which books in the Bible are actually, quote unquote, the word. Right. And which aren't. And he doesn't really list the ones that aren't, 
but the ones that are don't include Paul's epistles. Yes. <laughs> so you can sort of tell in the New Testament, there's only the four Gospels and Revelation. So, what? Yes. That's interesting. And he repeats that statement twice in the books that he published in 1758. He, he copies that out and adds a little bit to it. Wow. And uh, in Secrets of Heaven, uh, one notices that he never mentions Paul, never quotes from him. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't allusions. The allusions to Paul's work actually begin in section one. Oh, on the first page. Interesting. And they're ubiquitous. He's constantly echoing things that Paul says or alluding to things. Uh-huh. But he never mentions him and he never quotes him. Yes. So I think it was in 1764 that Swedenborg's friend Gabriel Beyer, no, a little later, I think. I forget what year it was. It might have even been 67. Anyway, Beyer writes to uh, Swedenborg and says, wait a minute. How come in Secrets of Heaven you never quote from Paul? Is there like something bad and wrong about what he said? So this was very noticeable, especially people who are very familiar with Paul. Yes. There would be quotes about like circumcision of the heart and things like that. Like, come on, how can you say that without quoting this passage from the epistles? Right, right. It was amazing. It definitely was noticeable. A gentleman named Oettinger also wrote to Swedenborg, said, how come you never, you know, what's why, why don't you mention Paul? It's so interesting because that people of his day just, yeah, noticed that lack of mention. Yeah, they it made it kind of weird that, wow, huh. Christian theology, but never mentioning Paul. What's going on yes. here? Yes. And um, so after this mention in supplements at the end of the Shorter Works of 1763, then in Divine Providence, which is published in 1764, in section 215, he talks about Paul's statement, the famous statement in Romans 3.28, that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, mm. which had you know, really kind of was revolutionary in Christianity because people read that as meaning that we're justified, we're made righteous, we're ready for heaven on the basis of our faith and not our performance of the Ten Commandments, the works of the law. Hmm. That's the way it had been interpreted. So in Divine Providence 2.15, Swedenborg takes issue with that. Yeah, he goes head to head a little bit. That's right, he does. And in this letter to Gabriel Beyer, he also talks about uh, Romans 3.28 has been misinterpreted. Hmm. Uh, So it seems like his position has changed. One of the things I notice about Swedenborg and other authors of the 18th century is they never use their turn signals, as you may have heard (laughs) me say before. They won't tell you when they change their opinion or something, uh, you know, expose their flank in that way. Yeah. But he references Paul and Paul's epistles more and more. Uh, And by the time you get to true Christianity, there are, I think, 68 mentions in true Christianity of just the name of Paul. Wow. There are many, many quotes from the epistles. And when I was translating that work, I was shocked to see over and over and over because I'd been kind of raised on those statements in Secrets of Heaven that these are not the word. Right. In true Christianity, he does call them 
the word. Mm-hmm. Wow. He, 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 he will say from the word and then Jeremiah and here's Galatians, you know, one of the epistles <laughs> uh, from Paul. And, and even sometimes where you can't get around it, he, he just says the word and he'll quote directly from, from Paul. In fact, a fun little fact, if you line up all the published theological works in the first edition on the shelf yeah. and look at the absolute last page, the last page of the first edition of True Christianity, yeah. it ends with three quotes in a row from the epistles. <laughs> That's how Swedenborg's published theological works end. <laughs> oh, wow. So that raises a question about, wait a minute, I thought you said, right. <laughs> you know, our inner child says, wait a minute, you said (laughs) that that's not the word. So what gives here? Yes. Well, Swedenborg's letter to Bayer is very interesting about this because he says that uh, the works that he listed there in Secrets of Heaven have this inner meaning that connects you directly to heaven. It connects you directly to the Lord it goes deeper as well as being sort of connected left to right, yes. so to speak. Uh, it, it has this cool uh, attribute that Swedenborg found when he was having spiritual experiences that those books are different in the way that they connect with yes. heaven. When he's writing to Bayer, he says, oh, Paul's epistles do connect you to heaven, but it's more indirectly. It's immediately. It doesn't have the direct effect that something like Isaiah Then he goes on to say, well, and the problem with correspondences is that they're easily twisted and misunderstood. There was this ancient word that was full of correspondences, and people got to the point where they couldn't understand it anymore. And people got to the point with the Old Testament where they didn't understand it anymore. And and so uh, he says that what Paul was writing— had to be written in a doctrinal style rather than a fully correspondential style because he was launching a new church. So interesting. And nobody would have, you know, if he was talking about sheep and grapes or something, nobody would have understood, you know, what he was talking about. And so interestingly, Paul's epistles are more sort of psychological. uh, They and, And they use a lot of the same terms that Swedenborg picks up of, you know, faith and charity, love of self, love of the world. There are many, many terms that Swedenborg uses that actually come from Paul's spiritual epistles. Spiritual body, I love that. And, you know, very, very direct. The spiritual body yeah. is awesome. That's right. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that language. And so I've tried to put this together. And here's my sort of short story of, of how I think this works, mm-hmm. that at the time that Swedenborg was writing— Paul was huge. In fact, people had the view, as some people do today, that what Paul wrote is the real meat of Christianity. If you want to know the constitution of Christianity, that's Paul's epistle to the Romans. What you find in the Gospels is kind of, quote-unquote, kiddie literature. It's sort of Sunday school stuff. It's cute stories about healings and stuff. But if you want the real Hmm. thing— you got to go to Romans to get that. So what was happening was that people were reading the Gospels in the light of Paul. Right. And so what Swedenborg wanted to do as a reset, I think, was that, no, you need to be reading Paul in the light of the Gospels. You've got it the wrong way around. Yes. 
And so in Secrets of Heaven, he's relentlessly laying out Isaiah. Here's how it is in Isaiah, in, you know, the four Gospels, in the book of Revelation, in the prophets, and all those um, word uh, books that he lists as being part of the word. And then it's like, okay, he does that for right. years. That's years the foundation. And years and years. Yeah. No Paul, no mention of Paul, no quotes from Paul. Interesting. Then it's like, okay, once we got that straight, now we can invite Paul back into the party when you really understand it's not Paul's party. I mean, he's sort of a second <laughs> yes. tier. But sure, let's bring him in. There's no yes. harm in it. And when he's writing to Paul, he says that actually, if you really read Paul with your hat on straight, that's not the analogy he uses. I'm paraphrasing wildly. (laughs) You will see that he actually teaches faith and charity equally as much as Jesus does in the four Mm. Gospels. It's actually that Paul has been twisted. And late in his works, I think it's True Christianity 560, but don't quote me on that. Uh (laughs) We're not recording. (laughs) uh, No, of course not. But... There's a place where Swedenborg's actually interacting with a group in the spiritual world whose whole project, apparently, is just to teach the same teachings that Swedenborg is teaching using Paul's epistles to do it and critiquing the twisted understanding of Paul that was prevalent in Christianity because you can sort of squeeze faith alone out of it. But you have to sort of work at it. Before you get to Romans 3.28, you have statements that it's all about your works. That's the basis of your salvation earlier in Romans. And it says it later, and it says it in Galatians, yes. and it says it elsewhere in, in Paul's epistles. And, and so that's a lot of what my Spirit and Life Bible study was about, was kind of looking at the whole Bible through that Swedenborgian yes. lens, trying to continue that project that people were doing in True Christianity 560 or yes, whichever Yes, well, and we'll get that number, and I'll stick it in the episode notes so that people could find it, because I'm so interested. That's so interesting. And to think about uh, Paul, like, it's good. You just got to get your, your core figured out, you know, get the core set in place, right. and then all the rest can shine beautifully. And taking it even further i just think that's that's sort of what swedenborg does for me with all of world religions and spiritual experience is like get this core the spiritual reality foundation uh. clear and then all these other things that you might think clash or don't work together just suddenly shine you know beautifully cuz you see the center that they're all coming from oh that's so that's so cool i have heard that kind of thing myself from people from an astonishing variety of backgrounds who encounter Swedenborg and it kind of organizes, you know, the, the thoughts uh, that they have from, from their religious tradition yeah. and so on. And so it makes me think of the tabernacle where you have the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. And then you have another holy area that's outside of that. And then you have a court outside of that. So it's got three yeah. layers to it. And I think that what Swedenborg was talking about as the word in Secrets of Heaven was the Holy of Holies. You know, this is the thing itself. But Paul's totally in the conversation. I would say Swedenborg could be interpreted as somebody who was writing doctrinal writings to launch some kind of new religious right. era. Paul and Swedenborg are kind of yeah. twins in, in yep, some ways, you know. Common. And, uh, and so you can fit these things in and even call them the word as he does— Later on, in fact, in some of his unpublished manuscripts, Swedenborg comes up with a term 
for the Acts and the Epistles, he refers to the Gospels as the evangelical word from the Latin term evangelium, meaning gospel. Mm. And he refers to the Acts and Epistles as the apostolic Mm. word, which is so interesting because it is the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of the Apostles. (laughs) So it's kind of a cool (laughs) term that it's called the apostolic word. And so it actually ends up getting that label of the word, but still in a way that kind of differentiates between this is the evangelical word, that's the apostolic word. So it's a fascinating topic, and all of that kind of just the thin edge of the wedge is that little statement. And isn't it interesting that that thin edge of the wedge is Swedenborg saying in supplements that Moravians reject the Old Testament and the Gospels, and they really only like what Paul has to say about faith alone. And so that's a little sign of what is to come, that that's going to be reset here. You know, there's going to be a re a reprioritization. I love it. Cool. Thanks so much, Jonathan. This was super fun to explore this topic with you. And will you stick around now to hear a little bit more about the Moravians and other things related to what Swedenborg was doing this week in history? All right, Curtis and Jonathan. Here we go. Hey there. Yeah, you ready? We are going this week in history to the year 1748. A good year. Actually, at this point, Swedenborg has been in Holland for something like 14 months. He left his work at the Board of Mines. Um, you might remember he like retired. He resigned this counselor, like the offer of the counselorship and was like, nope, I'm going to go to Holland to write this, to undertake this important work. And at that time, he was working on um, something that ended up never getting published that's called The Word Explained. Now, 14 months after spending time, this time in Holland, he decides instead to go to England. You also might remember that he, we touched on that time when he had a change of state in himself into the heavenly kingdom in image. Right. Do you guys right. remember that? Yeah. It's after that experience that he has this turning point where he ends up feeling like, you know what? I'm going to stop the word explained and change trajectory. And I'm just going to basically start all over again. It might be because of that spiritual state change that he realizes I wasn't even ready yet. Like now things are really going to get started. But it's this big question of why England? Before we sort of throw around ideas about why England in 1748, I just find it so fascinating that actually this his pathway uh, reflects or parallels something that he was doing in 1744. And so, and maybe that'll help give us some ideas of like why England in 1748. So in 1744 now, so here we are uh, jumping back a few more years, but he was publishing The Soul's Domain and he had chosen Amsterdam as the place where he would publish his volumes of The Soul's Domain. And interestingly, he has this dream that he records in the Journal of Dreams that he dreams of a ship and he took it as a sign that he should go instead to England to publish the rest of the soul's domain. But you'll remember he never finishes the soul's domain. The night he arrives in England, he dreams of starting a new work and 
that new work becomes what uh, he ends up publishing called The Worship and Love of God. And so he had been sort of uh, led to go to England. And now that he's in England in 1744, that's the year when he has the fly incident. He sees the guy on the block of ice. He finally gets his new digs at this, you know, spiritual palace that he describes where his dad lives in the spiritual world. So in 1744, it is that dream of the palace, the deliberation going on and him getting admission to this society in heaven. That's this transition point to him writing, giving up the soul's domain and writing worship and love of God. And in 1748, he has that change of state into the heavenly kingdom in image. And that's that tipping point for him to shift from writing um, the word explained to then embarking on secrets of heaven. And so in both year, in both times, he's first intending, I'm just going to publish this in Amsterdam. But then something happens where instead he gets redirected and ends up publishing in England. And one other final parallel is that it's in 1744 on his journey to England that he meets a Moravian man who he ends up staying with and who connects him with this Moravian community in England. And when he goes to England in 1748, it's just interesting that his Moravian connections are still there. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, but it's a Moravian named John Lewis who ends up being his publisher for Secrets of Heaven. That's right. And so it's just interesting that he had this Amsterdam, no wait, England. Wow, that parallel is really, really interesting. I hadn't ever seen that before. And it seems in 1744 that he does something. He's searching for the soul, but it's still a relatively secular. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's certainly philosophical. It's not theological, what he's doing in writing. Um, It's about how the soul and the human body interact and all that. And he shifts from that to the worship and love of God, which has a lot of science and speculation about creation and other stuff in it. But it's certainly, even the title, you know, obviously has a more sort of theological yes. uh, cast to it. I always wondered, because um, between 1758 and 1763, Swedenborg switches from publishing in London to publishing in Amsterdam. And I'd always thought, why did he go to Amsterdam? Mm. And uh, I met a Dutch scholar named Hus Janssens uh, who said, well, the real question is why did he go from Amsterdam to London Yes, in 1749, you know, and 1748 that we're talking about here. And it's true that he was well known in Amsterdam. And so one theory is that he went there for greater anonymity. Yeah. Because he probably realized, oh, if I'm going to get deep into this whole biblical theological thing, um, uh, it, it was his practice not to put his name on the title page of something when he entered a completely new field. Right. It, you know, just what would his name add? So an engineer wrote this, you know. Yeah, it's, right. <laughs> it's not going to help. And he if was not only like switching it. fields, he was switching genres. I mean, this is uh, not like going from anatomy to chemistry. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no. really changing. It's a much larger leap. Yeah, and so I think that's that's very interesting, and the fact that he had connections with printers who might be able to respect his anonymity, because he had a lot of friends in Amsterdam. He'd spent a lot of time there, right. and he was well-known with publishing. So I pictured in my mind, 
what if he's in Amsterdam thinking he's going to publish there? Because obviously those are his two choices. It can't be Sweden because of the rules about publishing and censorship and so on. So there's more freedom of the press in Amsterdam and in London. So, uh, so I wonder if he goes to Amsterdam in July of 1747, if I have that right, mm-hmm. uh, thinking, okay, I'm going to publish my works here, just like I've been publishing other things here. And then it only takes one person. I'm just totally making this up. Yes. But one person says, so what you're working on? Or, yeah, Swedenborg. Are you going to publish something? Assessor or, Swedenborg. Or what's your latest book about? Yeah. Or something. <laughs> and he's like, this is not going to work. <laughs> yeah. I can't be trying to explain myself to these up. people. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then he moves back in 1763 when he's already let the cat out of the bag and he's well known in Europe. Yes. By that point. And so there's no anonymity question anymore. He's still not putting his name on title pages. But but so that might be one factor. It's really interesting, isn't it? And the work that he did when he was in Amsterdam in those 14 months yeah. was amazing to me. He's writing like crazy. I love this. There's really two things he's writing, two manuscripts. He's writing like crazy in spiritual experiences. The... Um, journal of his spiritual experiences where he's writing down all these random things that are happening to him. And he's indexing the Bible, thousands of pages. And so it's going back and forth between spiritual experiences, the Bible, spiritual experiences, the Bible. And so it's all this preparatory work that's going on. So he was very busy there in Amsterdam, but maybe he realizes, oh, when it actually comes to printing this, I'm going to want to be in London because I'm going to really want to be under the radar yeah. with this thing. And it's so right? it's so interesting because uh, something he remarks on, and I have this from the Swedenborg Epic, a biography of, of Swedenborg um, written by Cyril Sigstedt in the 50s, I think. But she remarks about the Moravian community that he gets connected with, which I find so fascinating that it just it really is he just meets a guy on a boat on his trip to England um, when he's just like going to England because he just took it as a sign of like, I should be publishing in England, not in Amsterdam early on in 1744. And um, she remarks that the Moravian community that Swedenborg writes about how he's sort of inspired. He'd ends up, you know, they kind of want him to join their church, but he's not, uh, he doesn't ever like join the Moravian community as a, as a church goer, but he does, um, I think he does worship with them at times and like he, he he's very connected and he remarks that they are very um, uh, connected with the Holy Spirit or like has this sort of um, spiritual openness to this idea of being, um, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit and stuff. And I and I wonder if there's a part of him that feels more like these people won't look at me funny for what I'm doing as much, you know, right. like there, it's a little bit less of like his science friends, right. Back in Amsterdam or everything, they might be, what do you mean? You know, having these spiritual experiences, but, but the Moravians, it seems like they're maybe a little bit less likely to, you know, be super shocked that it's like, okay, he's having writing this spiritual work or something. It's just like you, Chelsea, with that woman that you were describing earlier this episode where she felt like she could tell you oh, her right, spiritual yeah. experiences because she's <laughs> yes. like, okay, you looked like a Moravian to her. <laughs> yeah, that's right. These people know. <laughs> that's right. 
It's very interesting that Swedenborg got hooked up with that community and the Moravians. There was a state religion in England, you know, the Anglican mm-hmm. Church, but uh, they tolerated these breakaway groups, and Moravians were one of the breakaway groups. And so I think there was sort of an ex- exciting, I don't know, as someone who grew up in the 60s, I might say a counterculture sort of feel to the Moravian thing right then. It was, it was much more intense. It's not this kind of institutionalized government religion. Mm-hmm. It's very personal and about spiritual experience and that type of thing. So it's an interesting group. He ends up seeing them in a pretty dark light and, and writing things about them later as he sees them from his spiritual perspective. So yep. he does disconnect from them at some point. But it seems very important that he has this community and he connects with this publisher yeah. who's willing to and happy to publish his works because they're, hey, it's all to the good. This is about spiritual stuff. It's an alternate view. And sure, I'll publish that. Yes. And he definitely goes to London and just pretty soon, within about a month or so, he's. we can definitely show that he's writing a lot in Secrets of Heaven and his writing of spiritual experiences goes down to just, he was writing 50 pages a month. It goes down to two or three pages a month because all his energy now is going into Secrets of Heaven. Yes. And it's like this. And that's what's so interesting about how he has that uh, state change uh, that he that he talks about that happens in Amsterdam where uh, it just seems like things were kind of getting worked out in him or something and then it like it all clicks and it's like okay now I'm I'm good to go because now he's Swedenborg I was gonna say that he turned into Swedenborg when he made that change of state I mean that must have been when heaven started talking through him because we talked many episodes ago about the word explained and how I can get in there and it just doesn't I don't hear the voice you know yep, even though right. it's the man Swedenborg but there's this, to me, there's this very distinct shift. You can see some foreshadowing of it, but the tone and the, the kind of things he's talking about and the worldview he has, there's such a clean break <laughs> in a lot of ways when he starts going into Secrets of Heaven. And it maybe had to do with him going up and living in the room in that palace. That's when he's, his spirit's yeah. in heaven. And so now he talks like heaven. And that's why I, I, if it was just the pre-that stuff, we wouldn't be making a podcast about it or we'd be making some podcast that was like him and other thinkers of his time, but he made this shift <laughs> yes. and it becomes this like high end, unmistakable material. Yeah. And it's striking to me to put myself in his shoes in, um, you know, early October of 1748 because it was October 1743 when apparently he started having this, what he called preternatural sleep uh, he had some kind of vision of the Lord in 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 a dream uh, back then, and um, so he's been at this for five years. This yes. transition thing <laughs> has yes. been going on for five years of his life, you know. And so I think he is really—it's getting basted in. He's he's ready to go now. Well, thanks, Curtis and Jonathan. It's so fun to explore this stuff with you. Oh, it's great. Likewise. All right. And we will uh, be together next week inside Off the Left Eye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And you can explore all our content and resources at our website, offthelefteye.com. To become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, 
go to otle.causevox.com to support our work with a donation. But you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself, so I mean it when I say thank you for listening. <laughs>